0: And, and uh, get started. I'm going to start us off with a prayer, and then we'll just kind of jump right into this. Let's, let's go to God. God, we come to you now, and we're, we're thankful for this time to come and, and think about something that that likely is close to everybody in this room on some level. Um, I pray, God, as we think about um, people that experience disability, I pray that you will give us your spirit and give us your knowledge and Give us your patience and presence. Thank you so much for what you do. Be with us as we spend this time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you guys for, for being here. I, my guess is off the front and Probably a lot of you are here because either you're touched by a disability personally or someone in your family is, or uh, maybe you have someone at your church and you'd like to have a better idea how to think about what they experience and maybe even how to help them. So what we're going to do is I've actually kind of presented this material in different different settings and we're going to go through about five, I'm going to scratch the surface on about five different areas of disability that we can't really go fully, deeply into, but just to kind of give you a bird's eye view of kind of some of the different things that we can deal with as a church different ways we can think about it theologically, the way that we can look at the way disability is impacting our, our broader culture, and, and most importantly to me and to my heart, to recognize how we can develop a relationship of reciprocity with those that experience uh, difference or disability. And so, let me say on, on the front end, just a quick disclaimer there's a lot of nuance in this conversation that I don't have the time, don't have the ability to flesh out here. So if you catch me using a word that you don't understand or you haven't, haven't heard before, feel free to stop me and I'll explain it and we'll move forward. I'll switch between using uh, disability and, and difference and recognize that a lot of the words that we grew up using to describe difference and disability are politically incorrect now. Um, and because society's moving, and, and I think sometimes, especially those of us that experience a lot of privilege, we can get frustrated by this because we're like, we don't even know how to talk, how to communicate. I actually think this is a good impulse as we're really striving to find words and terminology that can grant people their full human dignity. So we're kind of doing this dance right now. There's this tension between learning how to talk about it in a way that honors both the difficulty and the dignity of the person that's experiencing the disability. And I'd also like to say especially because I imagine some of you are here because you experience this either in your family or someone that you're connected to or close to that we're also going to have to do some generalities that aren't really fair and that probably won't, won't fully represent your personal experience but there's just no way to talk about this without going into some generalities we're going to go into some ways there are some ways we're going to talk about disability that don't apply to me and there'll be some ways that don't apply to you but to kind of to quote John Swinton and this is one of my favorite quotes about disability if you meet one person that experiences disability you've met one person that experiences disability Mm. And there is just as much more diversity in the community um, that's impacted by impairment, disability, difference as there is amongst the normate community amongst us. So I want to start by just looking at a few things that I think are, uh, when, when we in general society think of, of disability, a few images that come to our mind. Um, wheelchair, handicap, spaces, and then disability claims. I mean, those those are three things that I think are pretty common in our world when we think about, we think, and, and again, we're looking at this and measuring it by benefits that they receive, some privilege that they receive uh, in order to kind of fit into our world. And we're going to talk about which model that fits into and why. Um, here's some images of, when i think uh, most people think of disability these are some things that come to their mind anybody know who who this guy is Stephen hawking, Stephen hawking that's right uh, what about the one in the middle good doctor. The, good doctor. the good doctor and i want to tell you on the front end uh i hate that show <laughs> and i have so many i've got uh, on the on the front end too i've got a, a child that's on the autism spectrum, and everybody comes to me and they're like, have you seen The Good Doctor? And I'm like, yes, I've seen The Good Doctor, and I hate The Good Doctor. (laughs) 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 And then finally, uh, what's the last image here? Rain Rain Man, that's right. And what all of these represent is a way that we commonly think about disability in our culture, but very seldom represents what living with people experiencing disability is actually like. And so it's important that we slow down and we look and we think about, um, think about these differences. The first thing I want to I talk about real quickly is a, the difference between the medical model, which is what dominated the 19th and early 20th century, and what would be called a social functional model of understanding disability. The medical model... Um, viewed disability simply as a biological condition to be cured if possible. Institutionalization or confinement in the home resulted from this emphasis after all if disability is only a medical condition one does not have to think about social structures which independent of any biological fact exclude individuals. In recent decades, however, activists and scholars have instead proposed a social functional model of disability. This approach draws a distinction between biological conditions in themselves and a lack of fit between a given body type and built societal structures. Thus a sensory deficit such as vision or hearing loss is called an impairment. The term disability refers to both the functional limitation that results from the combination of impairment plus the social environment. I know that's, a long, that, that's a, a long definition, but we're gonna kind of break that down and, and get into the guts of it a little bit. What I would argue is this medical model has done a lot of harm, because it has dehumanized people. It has categorized them as people to be fixed, um, and, and we have not been able to fully recognize and accept the image of God and people that experience disability. Even if you look, and this is one of the reasons that I, I have an issue with, with The Good Doctor. And no offense, if anybody likes that show, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not coming at you. But one of the reasons that, that I, I personally have difficulty with the, the Good Doctor is because when we see images of disability that are popularized, it's always people that come up and they make a mark in our world. It's because there's something that they can do that brings them up. They show something useful. For broader society, we can recognize something in themselves that we find valuable. We set an arbitrary standard of normal. Like, what is normal anyway? How do we define that? How do we come to, to a model that decides who's normal and who's not normal? And whatever doesn't meet this arbitrary model must be fixed. And it's inspiration. We find our inspirational models, again, because... They, even with this disability, they find a way to make a mark in our world. This is dangerous. Because, and, and Stanley Hauerwas says that compassion is extremely dangerous when we're dealing with people that experience disability. He talks about when he was at South Bend, and South Bend teaching at Notre Dame, visiting an infirmary there, and he would visit... Howard Ross is one of the guys on the front end that did a lot of work on the theology of disability and his medical ethics stuff. And he would go visit the infirmary and visit people that experienced disability. And when he got there, he would find people that were in a room. They hadn't been properly taken care of. They hadn't been properly cleaned. They were often sitting in their own feces and urine. And it was almost like they were trying to say, like the institution was making a statement, wouldn't it be much better if we just weren't alive? Moltmann uh, says that, uh, in in 98, an article that that he wrote, 78% of Western society believes that abortion is the proper way forward if you discover a disability in a prenatal screening. In Europe, they think that uh, within the next 10 years, there'll be almost no Down syndrome children left, because of the ability to to find Down syndrome in prenatal screening and to uh, have an abortion aboard that fetus, that child. And you see what compassion does. What compassion does is it tells us that it's better for people not to live. They can't live like us. So we have to be careful about the way that we experience compassion, the way that we Experience pity. This can be very, especially vicious when it's tied to our understanding of sinful nature, tied to our understanding of the fall, because we come up with an anthropocentric model of what humanity looks like, of what we're we're being transformed into, instead of a theo or, or Christocentric model. So, in other words, The ideal human is not someone that's being transformed into the image of God. The ideal human is someone that's just better versions of us, right? And so what happens is that we look at people that experience disability as more marred by sin, as further from the image of God. And we even see this, the apostles dealing with this and Jesus dealing with this. In John chapter 9, verse 2, when they come across this man that was born, that was blind from birth, The apostles say, who sinned, this man or his parents? And so right there, we see the sin that's inherent in the system. And we still experience that today. I think we experience it differently. But if you know someone that has experienced uh, disability or has a special needs child, uh, you can really quickly realize the shame that's inherent in that. And Dealing with a child, whose fault was this? What did I do? Could I have done something different in The pregnancy, did we eat the wrong thing? Did we take the wrong pill? And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out (laughs) what we did. So we still find this shame, this sin inherent in the system. A social functional model um, would take the physical and neurological differences plus the social structures into account. And I've got to watch myself because I'm covering a lot of stuff. And Like I said, I'm just scratching the... So I may have to jump... From time to time, to go to to, to to move forward, so that we can cover all all of all of this and make a good uh, make a good full arc here. Many that experience difference say that it is the social element more than the impairment that causes difficulty. And you think about people that are are blind or deaf, that have tics that may rock, that may moan, they may, they may scream, they may vocalize as, as they're um, dealing with a, a, being overwhelmed by a sensory environment. What we notice when we see this is we kind of notice ourselves. Anybody ever been moved to pity when you've seen someone that obviously is not fitting in like the rest of us are? Anybody felt uncomfortable with that? Imagine like our discomfort, what we feel. um, This is the social structures that they walk into every day that doesn't allow them to experience difference, that doesn't allow them to be different. These very reactions reduce the humanity of those experiencing difference. It breaks down the reciprocal give and take into a relationship by raising one of us above the other, and we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about that in just a minute. All right, now I wanna move on and talk about churches, communities of faith. But first of all, I want us to look at a, a couple graphs uh, that, that kind of show the rise. And I'm gonna pick on, on autism real quick because this is the, the water that I, I swim in. And, and really, that's what we hear a lot about, especially at the rising rate. So we need to recognize that our churches are gonna be confronted with this and how we deal with it is going to say a lot for how we move forward. So in 1975, it was one in 5,000. In 2009, it was one in 110. See this graph in the way that it, that it moves up. What is that, 50 times, right? Almost 50, a 50 times uh, increase. But if we look here at this next graph, this is from 04 to 2018. It went from one in 166 to one in 59. So in 14 years, it more than doubled, right? The rates that we're seeing. So this is something that's gonna be confronted that we're gonna have to confront in our churches, and our places of worship. 50% of people that experience, families that experience disability refrain from religious activity because they feel unwelcome or unincluded. I read another statistic, and I think, and I actually saw this, but I haven't been able to find it. I lost the article, and I haven't been able to find it, which makes me think that maybe this is high. But I'm going to say it anyway, with the recognition that this, the, these numbers may be off. But I read the statistic that 90% of families that receive a, a, a diagnosis of, of, of some kind of disability within one year leave their community of faith. So let's recognize that may be a high statistic, but we know if we've been around it, that it happens a lot. And it happens for, for, for two reasons. Number one, it's just, it's just difficult. And we're gonna talk about some of that difficulty here in just a second. But number two, sometimes, especially, you know, the average church size in America is like 50, 60. So a lot of these people have a child that experiences disability in a church that doesn't have the resources to accommodate them, or at least that's what we think. So a lot of these people aren't leaving the church, they're going somewhere else that has the resources so that they can come and worship and feel welcome and included. But 85% of families that experience um, disability say that the number one thing that most churches need is education and training. Not. They don't need a sensory room. They don't need elevators, right? That's not the number one. All these resources that we think, and these are things that are accessible to all churches, regardless of size. Just a shift in the way that we think and the way that we approach. Just some knowledge of how to deal with people that are dealing with a life-changing diagnosis. What happens when a family receives a, 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 a diagnosis and they have a child that experiences difference or disability is they immediately become a stranger in their own land. I experienced this. Uh, this is, I want to show you, this is my, my little boy, Isaiah. He's on the autism spectrum. There he is when he's born. This, he's about three years old right here, and this is about, when, uh, about the time that he was diagnosed, and here he is now. He goes through like a lot of kids on the autism spectrum. He has different things. He fixates someone right now. Anybody want to guess what he's obsessed with? Dumbo. Dumbo. So he's got Mama, Mama Dumbo, Mama Dumbo down here on the bottom, and this is Dumbo, and he couldn't find a feather, so he had to substitute with a daffodil on the top. <laughs> so, so we experienced this, and, and we had about two or three years before we received the official diagnosis And what I can say is that immediately, I was a stranger among my own people. Mm -hmm. I've been at Cenotopia Church of Christ for 14 years now, and I've been there about seven years when this happened. And I have been so blessed by this church that loved me and let me find myself. But at the same time, there is a broken relationship between parents and families and experience difference and the church And it's broken on both sides. It's not just the church's fault. It's our fault too. Because it's broken on the church's side because we, and I'm talking specifically to the Church of Christ, and I know other churches experience this on some level, but in the Church of Christ, we're not very good at mystery. We're not very good at, uh, we like to know how things work. We are so caught up in enlightenment and rationalism that uh, we like, and this scientific approach that we like to know everything and we like to have an answer for everything. And when a family receives a diagnosis of disability or difference, immediately they are caught up in, in mystery. We can't explain what happened. We can't explain how God could allow this to happen to people that are very faithful and we don't always know how to deal with this mystery, so we say things that are really stupid. <laughs> We say, um, God has a plan. This is all part of God's plan. We say all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. We say God chose you because you could handle this. He chose you because you could handle the situation. And I remember when someone told me that with the best intentions. And I said, well, let me tell you something. God chose wrong. (laughs) 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 Because I am not equipped to handle this and, and to deal with this right now. But it's also broken on the parent side too because we are bad at vulnerability. We are bad at admitting that we need help. We are bad at, at showing our weakness, especially at church. Church sometimes is the place where our ego is most on show. All of us have experienced that to, to tell the old joke where we become a different family as soon as we shut the car door right? There is a certain expectation of who we are and how we're supposed to behave at church that keeps us from being vulnerable. And so often you have the church that has has good intentions, but they don't know what to say because we don't deal well with mystery. And you've got parents that know that they need to help, but at the same time, they don't want to need help. They don't want to admit it. And somehow admitting it It's like there's this magical thinking that goes on that if you admit that there's a problem, then you create the problem. So we have difficulty on both sides, and it's this standoff. It was difficult for me. It was like a death. And on some level, it it was a death. I mean, not the death of my, my child. He's still alive. He's great. But it was the death of my ideal of who my child was gonna be. Because I think what most of us think for our kids, we just want our kids to be like us but just a little bit better. <laughs> we want them to be a little bit smarter, a little bit more athletic, a little bit better looking, right? And so what happens when you have a child that experiences difference in disability is that that ideal child dies. And you have to learn to love the <coughs> child that you have. And I want to say that that can be really hard, but it is such a great journey because what ends up happening is you eventually realize that you're the problem, (coughs) not your kid. Mm -hmm. What disability does is it confronts us with our own fragility. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, and and Richard Beck in Unclean, both do a really good job of kind of digging into disgust, and what that disgust psychology, the, the way that it impacts the way that we kind of move through the world, And and basically, the things that create our disgusted instinct are things that remind us of our own death. And so, what happens when we when we deal with people that experience this difference is that whenever, if we move to a level where we see them in their full humanity, instead of there being a hierarchical relationship, there is a real give and take, a reciprocity. There is that we're reminded of our own death. We're reminded of our own fragility, of our own weakness. And so it's really difficult to move past that because that's something we spend a lot of time avoiding and working our way around. I, I don't have a, a lot of time to unpack this next part, but it's about uh, mission. And, and I have, if you guys are interested in this, I've got resources um, that I can give you. I actually wrote kind of a position paper uh, for John Mark Uh, he, he gave me an A on it. So that was, that was, uh, those those don't come easy all the time, I don't think. Lauren talked me into it. Is that right? (laughs) 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 So he's got deniability. He's officially got deniability. Now, if you read it and it's, it's not that, if you don't think it's that good. But in that, I unpack it because the missional theology shows how God is working through the world, uh, in what God's mission is from Genesis through Revelation how we're tied up in that story what God is moving, what he's doing I don't have time to unpack all of that but I do want to focus a little bit on Paul's theology of weakness and foolishness um, from 1 Corinthians um, and I want to read first of all, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God And then in verse 27, it goes on and it says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Richard Hayes says of this text, for anyone who grasps the paradoxical logic of this text, the world can never look the same again. Ben Witherington says that it requires us to ask how much, this is really important, how much our values in life, what we really long for are dictated by culture and how much by the gospel. Human wisdom and strength sees little value indifference and disability and is even threatened by The foolishness of the cross is salvation through an irreducibly disabled Jesus. Think about this on the social functional level. Jesus is at the peak of physical and social inability. It is here through the act of, of crucifixion, Jesus perfect high priest is the penultimate disabled person. Persons experiencing difference teach us the gospel because they represent power and wisdom, the way that God shows power and wisdom. and they also have solidarity with Jesus who gave up privilege, as it talks about in Philippians chapter 2 verse five through 11 gave up that privilege, like Jesus, you know, Jesus gave up that privilege, took the form of a servant, lowering himself and emptying himself. Basically, Jesus was in solidarity with people on the lowest tier of society. And people that experience disability can teach us a lot about that. They can teach us about being different in a world of sameness. They can teach us about trust and community, radical community, because we can hide our need for community. Our rugged American individualism tells us that we don't need community. We need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. But people that experience disability depend on community. They live in community. They need community to take care of them in a way that they can't hide. And we shortchange that, because we turn that into a hierarchical relationship where we're helping them, and any relationship where... Uh, that is just going one direction is broken, whether it's a marriage, if there's someone in a marriage that feels like all they do is give and there's a, a, and they never receive anything back, they're not in a happy marriage. If there's someone that feels like all they do is receive and they don't have anything to give, they're also not in a happy, healthy marriage. I think the same thing can be said about all of our relationships. If there's ever a partner that all they do is give and they don't receive anything back, eventually they're <coughs> hard, they're going to get bitter, they're going to run into difficulty. And we shortchange ourselves when we interact with people that experience difference when we don't recognize the gifts that they have to give us. They're better at being their true self because their difference and their weaknesses are out there in a way that they can't hide. Isaiah, um, if he wants to act like a dinosaur, You know what he's going to (laughs) do? He's going to become a dinosaur. And he doesn't care where he's at. He doesn't care if we're in the middle of a church service. He doesn't care if we're in the middle of uh, the checkout line at Walmart. If we go to a black tie, say if we're going somewhere and we're supposed to be dressed up, do you know what Isaiah's going to wear? He's going to wear a dinosaur shirt or some other wildlife shirt. Now think about how we feel. You ever walked into a space where um, everybody was dressed up, maybe it was black tie, they were in suits and ties, and you walked in and you just had a polo on. We immediately feel different and we feel out of place. Or imagine that it's just the opposite, that you walk in and you're overdressed and everybody else is more casual. We immediately feel that discomfort. I think people that experience difference can teach us a lot more about being our true self, about being who we are everywhere that we go. That's something that we sometimes struggle with. We We have difficulty with that, I also think that people that experience difference can be the antidote to what our churches are struggling with. I think they can help bring us out of this evangelical malaise and plug us back into God's redemptive, creative work of renewal. Walter Brueggemann talks a lot about totalism, and I think I'm not I'm not sure but I think that he's got to take some of that from Foucault's theories on social control. But I want to give you his his definition of of totalism. Um, Brueggemann says ideological totalism intends to contain all thinkable, imaginable, doable social possibilities. That totalism always wants to monopolize imagination and it wants to monopolize technology so that there are no serious alternatives that seem to be offered. I think it's easier to explain totalism by feel than by definition. So imagine that you're in church. Maybe you're preparing a sermon. I know that this isn't going to get in everybody's backyard, but it'll get in some of our backyards. You're preparing a sermon. And you look down the list at the people that are, that, that are uh, in the worship order, and you know you've got all the wrong ones. You've got the guy that's going to say the five, or God forbid, ten-minute prayer. You've got the guy that's going to get a little bit too theological during the Lord's Supper. You've got the worship leader that's going to explain a little bit about the theological <coughs> implications of each song and tell the backstory of where it came from and what it meant. And you know that your sermon is gonna take about five minutes longer than normal, (laughs) right? And so you find yourself in a position where you can't even enjoy the worship service because you're feeling the pressure from the outside. And you're thinking about how you're gonna lose people because the gospel proclamation that day is going to take 15 minutes longer than normal. That may or may not have happened to me Easter Sunday. <laughs> Eric, Eric's a, our involvement minister, and I could not, he did a great job presiding over the communion, and I could not enjoy it because of the, because of the total, because of this pressure that we have to conform to a way of doing things. Brugemann would say that is a feeling of the totalism. Another feeling might be that feeling you have in your gut when you hear someone say something racist or sexist and the difficulty that you have commenting, um, or that they, they say something from a, uh, the difficulty that we have disagreeing with a popular political position or politician because it goes against kingdom principles. When we've all found that, we've heard, we've been part of those inappropriate conversations and felt the difficulty, the pressure not to correct people that are experiencing, not not correct people that are saying things that are clearly against our values, that also is the totalism. People that experience difference, a lot of them, are almost totally immune to the totalism. Because sometimes, you know, they're not quiet when they're supposed to be quiet. Sometimes they're they're vocal. They're not vocal when they need to be vocal. Sometimes they go fast when they should go slow. Sometimes they go slow when they should go fast. And to truly bring them into our community, to make them the core members, John Veneer talks about that in the Daybreak community, the people that experience disability are their core members. To make them our core members in the church is to throw a rich into our finely tuned worship services. You know that you're a special needs parent when you celebrate appropriately used profanity? (laughs) Uh, Like um, we were at church, and this was a few weeks ago, and uh, Isaiah, our son, he was watching um, something on YouTube or something, and it was time He turned it up real loud, and we took it from him. And when we took it, he said, and like, when he said it, I mean, it was loud enough, and Ashley and I were like, well, but then we were like, high five, because he used it appropriately. I couldn't have done it better myself, you know? <laughs> you, you see, though, there, there is this thing, these things that we're not supposed to do, they do, right? They break us out of that. They force us, maybe most importantly, is that they force us to slow down. They force us to be human. They force us to recognize them. And if we're going to enter into a reciprocal relationship, we have to slow down. And we have to become creative. And we have to think about other possibilities. We have to break out of the totalism. Recognize people of difference as what they are, the core of the gospel community. And for us to do this is to let them become our teachers to allow them to teach us about community and trust, about true wisdom and strength that confronts our own weakness and foolishness. It's to slow down. It's to be present. You can't go on autopilot and connect to people that experience difference. They demand a different kind of presence. And they teach us, if we'll allow them, It brings us face to face also, this is kind of the, the, the last part before I get into just a few practical things I think we can do moving forward. They also bring us face to face with the inequities that are in the system. Because of Isaiah, I see the world differently. I'm more conscious of race issues because I'm now part of a community that doesn't always receive special treatment. I cared about that before. I cared about social justice, and I cared about equity. But it's kind of like when you're at the airport, and you're on that people mover. I think sometimes our privilege is kind of like that. We're on that people mover, and it's moving us so fast, and we're enjoying the ride so much that we can't slow down to see the flaws in the system. And there are a lot of people... Um, that are not on that people mover. They're either stopped, they don't have access to it, and they're having to slow down. And when you slow down, you begin to see the way that the system isn't quite as good as we thought that it was. Isaiah forced me to see that. For the first time, I always thought, why would anybody need welfare? There's um, There's enough resources, enough jobs in this country that anybody that works hard enough and pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps But what I didn't put into the equation was the privilege that I came from. Pretty wealthy, middle class family, both parents, a lot to fall back on. But then I have a child that experiences disability and he needs therapies. He needs to see the doctor more often and we can't afford it. There is no way for us to afford it without government help. How long do you think it took me to take that check? That was instantaneous. Because the need to help my child and to advocate for my child quickly helped me come up past the pride that I had, the thinking that everybody can get by on their own. Puts us in that position, slows us down. It made me, I think, a better advocate for women and uh, what what they experience in our communities of worship. Because now I, I walk with A community that not only doesn't get to to use their gifts, but people don't even think they have any gifts. And so when you recognize this, this community of gifted people that have so much to bring to the church and to the community, it helps you recognize other groups that don't get to use their gifts or bring their gifts to the community. When you don't have anyone to look down on, it forces you in And isn't it a shame that, that we're so selfish that it usually takes our own personal tragedy before we can kind of wake up and recognize these flaws in the system. In Alcoholics Anonymous, in the 12 and 12, I think it's on page 93, 93 or 103, it says pain is the touchstone of all spiritual progress. Suffering draws us close to Jesus. All suffering, all suffering groups can teach us this when we enter a relationship of reciprocity with him. That's why it's so important. uh, Yesterday, um, Richard Hughes was talking about the Church of Christ and the future of it can be saved. And one of the things that he talked about was that sometimes, in, in, in the white church in particular, it takes a black brother or sister to to look in from the outside to show us what we're doing wrong because we can't see it because we got blinders on. Any community that suffers or that has been oppressed can show us where um, our own fault lies in ways that we can't see for ourselves. Sometimes they can be the eyes that we don't have. Now it's really important that we don't expect them to. Everybody's not equipped for that. You know, we don't need, we can't put it on everybody else to explain our own problems to us. But when we can walk with them and we can befriend them and we can walk a mile in in their shoes and do our best to see things from their perspective, when we can slow down and we can listen and we can say, tell me more instead of explaining things away, we can learn so much about God. We can learn so much about Jesus from people that suffer. Whether it's minorities, whether it's women, whether it's people in the LGBTQ community, whether it's um, alcoholics or drug addicts, all these people. And I'm not obviously not advocating for them but I'm just saying, in general, people that suffer have a lot to teach us. People that experience disability can teach us so much about Jesus. They can teach us so much about community. They can teach us so much about presence. And when we walk with them, what they'll do is they'll put a spotlight on our, on our own weaknesses. They'll expose us. And I think that's one of the reasons that we have such difficulty walking in a relationship of reciprocity with people that experience differences because we don't want people to see our job. We want to keep hiding it. We want to keep thinking that we've got it together. We want to keep thinking that everybody else needs to raise their self to our standard. While not recognizing that it's really us that needs to raise ourselves to theirs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Finally, I want to just give a few tips, kind of kind of going forward, and then we'll finish. And I'll any questions, I'll I'll take some questions. I think we got enough time. If anybody has um, has anything they'd like me to expound on a little bit further. So what are some ways that we can move forward? Because I hate classes like this, and at the end, maybe we've got good material, maybe it's challenged our thinking, but there's nothing practical to move forward. So I'm going to try to offer a few practical, uh, some practical advice. So how can we be better at recognizing the humanity of people that experience difference of walking with them? So the first thing we can do is friendship. And I mean real friendship. I don't mean going and, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean going to the Special Olympics as a volunteer or putting yourself in a position where uh, you're on this level and they are on this level. I mean a true reciprocal relationship where you enter into the friendship not looking for what you can give necessarily. I mean, obviously, you'd be willing to do that. But more looking at what you can learn what they can teach you about how to be a better human, about how to be transformed into the image of Jesus. I'm sure in this crowd, most of you guys are familiar with uh, Henry Nowen. Yep. Anybody ever read his book, Adam, before it was the last book that he wrote before he died? So. Some of it, some of it a little bit. Well, a lot of you are familiar that um, Henry Nowen moved uh, to the Daybreak community, which was a community uh, set up for community living with people that experience disability, and who and lived with was what he would call the most profoundly, what he calls in his book, the most profoundly disabled person in the Daybreak community. His name was was Adam. And he, he gives this quote kind of at the end, and what Nowen talks about is the friendship that he develops with Adam, Adam who is nonverbal, Adam who can do almost nothing on his own, but he talks about how slowing down and learning to be silent, how he learned to communicate with Adam, how he learned to feel love from Adam. Well, listen to this. This was after Now, and you know at the end of Nalan's life, he went through a little bit of a crisis, a faith crisis, where he actually left the daybreak community for a while and received kind of some serious psychological help. So he's writing about this. This is after he's come back. He says, as I live through the emotional ordeal I realized I was becoming like Adam. He had nothing to be proud of. Neither did I. He was completely empty. So was I. He needed full-time attention. So did I. I found myself resisting this becoming like Adam. I did not want to become dependent and weak. I did not want to be so needy. Somewhere, though, I recognized that Adam's way the way of radical vulnerability was also the way of Jesus. When we can recognize that we need help and can bring our weaknesses forward, people that experience disability can teach us that because a lot of them wear their weaknesses on their sleeve. They have weaknesses in a way that they can't hide them. I don't know that theirs are any more profound than ours. We just can hide them, and they can't. Um, for your churches, this is quick. Um, a quick way, something that, that you can do to kind of quickly educate your, your, your churches and also um, help them be able to more effectively minister to families that experience disability, is, is called Buddy System. Um, you guys may or may not have heard of it. It's where you can take some of your teenagers or, or young adults or even adults if they want to do it. And uh, Have you guys heard of The Arc? It's a national organization that advocates for people that experience uh, physical and intellectual disability. Um, the ARC actually has people that you can contact them and they can come in and train um, your folks um, on kind of the basics of how to deal with people that experience certain disabilities. The main one is autism right now. It's not to negate the others. It's just because the rise of autism it's very prevalent. And, but a lot of the same things that come from that training also apply to people that experience other kinds of disability too. And mainly the training teaches you just to be more human with people. Just to slow down more, to be patient, to recognize when there are things that are happening that are out of control that might be triggering them, to recognize when they may need a break, to give them attention, to love them, to slow down, to let them know what's going on. So they can come in and train your folks. And and teenagers are great at this. Man, my teenagers teenagers love my children so much. I could get kind of weepy if I talked about it too much. But my my teenagers, um, they love my kids like nobody else loves my kids. Both, and we have got two. We got a little girl, and a little. Well, I guess I can show you all that picture. I'm mm-hmm. to show you all that too. This is uh, this is my little girl. This is Liddy May, and and here they are together. Uh, I don't know why they've got the dog in the in the stroller there, <laughs> <laughs> but they do. That's just a little snapshot of them and who they are. One of the things you said that, that arc? say what? You said it yeah, the arc. A R C. Yeah, it's a national organization. And especially most big cities will have one. Um, But they're they're organized on a national and a state level, so so they can can help you out with that. But but another thing you can do if you really want to learn how to interact well with, with people that experience difference and disability, look at the way that their siblings interact with them. My little girl is Isaiah's best advocate. She understands him. She loves him. She's frustrated with him. (laughs) She gets mad at him, but she knows how to be human with him, and he knows how to be human with her. I think one of the gifts, any of you guys ever been, one of the things that that strikes me, um, any of you guys ever been to the Special Olympics, volunteered there? Um, Go there sometime, and just hang out, and watch, and see what you can learn. Not as a volunteer, not as someone to give, but as someone there to receive. You know what happens at the Special Olympics when the music comes on? People dance. <laughs> they, they can be fully human. They dance, right? If someone, if they're running a race and someone falls down, you know what they do? They stop the race. They help them. They may laugh at them. <laughs> they may joke with them unless they're really hurt. And then they won't joke with them. They teach us so much. They, they Can you imagine watching the Olympics and someone falling down and you Usain Bolt stopping and helping him back up, right? I think that's happened one time. We know of one, this story of some Olympian that, that I can't remember when, but it was a real famous story, and, and he fell, and someone stopped and helped him, maybe even after they won the race, and we were blown away that someone could give up winning to help somebody else. In the Special Olympics, that happens every time. Every time they stop. They don't care about winning the race. They care more about each other, so we can learn from that. Again, um, I think that the, the buddy system is a way, and the thing about the arc is they can come in and they can give you this basic training, this basic information. And if you're interested, you can give me your email and I can send you some more information. I think there's uh, a few really good books. I could have brought some more. Um, Stanley Harawas and John uh wrote this book, Living Gently in a Violent World, part of the uh, Reconciliation series. Um, and uh, if, you, if you know anything about Stanley Hauerwas and Jean Veneer, this is kind of a study in opposites <laughs> about the way that they kind of communicate and approach things, but it's just a really good, a helpful way to think about disability and how it impacts not just us in the way that we think, but our society. This is Adam, talked about that already. Uh, Amy Fitt Lee wrote a book called Leading a Special Needs Ministry that's very practical um, and, and talks about how to train volunteers and how to do that. And really, with just some small shifts, uh, you can even help. I mean, imagine the gift that you give your teenagers and, you young, and your young people when you teach them to value the time they have with people that experience difference. Imagine the kind of young people that we would be bringing up. Um, this book is really good for people that are raising children uh, with, with um, disability, The Spiritual Art of Raising Children with Disabilities by Kathleen dyer Bolden, she's a, a certified spiritual director. Stanley Halawas again says that a church without disabled people is a disabled church. There was on the airplane here, and I'll, I'll finish with this with this story. On the airplane here, we were we were loading up, and uh, you know the best seat on an airplane. I mean, unless you're John Mark and you fly, fly first class, but the rest of us that fly, <laughs> that fly coach. Um, it's the exit seat, right? It's the exit row because you got a little bit more leg room. Well, we were sitting there and, you know, they've got to get a verbal confirmation from everybody that in the, in the event of a crash, you've got to be willing to, to operate the exit door and, and help people get off. You've got some responsibility. So when it comes time to do the verbal ascent, it gets to one person that's sitting behind me and she says, do I have to? And uh, the flight attendant said, yes, you do. And so he asked her again, she said, well, I guess. And he said, I'm gonna need to hear a yes from you. And so she said, well, what's gonna happen if I don't? He said, I will move you to another seat And then he comes back around and he says, okay, will you give me a verbal yes? And she says yes. And in my head I'm thinking, (laughs) if there's an emergency, I'm manning this door on my own. (laughs) There is no way that this lady, uh, she has already made her intentions clear. In the event of emergency, she is getting off the plane. (laughs) I think that what we face as the church, I really think that The gospel presents us with the best way of doing life. I really believe that. But with it comes responsibility, right? We don't just get to sit in the aisle seat. We've got stuff that we've got to do. And I think people that experience disability, um, their family, special needs families, if there's a church that's doing it well, they will travel to come to church there. It's an evangelistic opportunity. But even if there's no practical use there at all, like even if we don't get a single extra person to write on our attendance sheet on something on Sunday morning, there is something about being faithful to the gospel, about being faithful to those, about reaching out and representing those that, in the eyes of the world, are weak and foolish, but in the eyes of God, are wise and strong. And that is part of our call as Christians, and part of our call as the church. We can't just sit in the aisle seat we've got to take some responsibility. So, officially done? Is there any we've got? I think we've got about five more minutes. Is that right? Is this officially over at 12? Twelve. Anybody have any questions or comments? Yes, ma'am. I just have a comment. We're launching our official special needs ministry at church, and while we've been talking about the adaptations yeah. that need to be made, and we're also very much a part of it rapidly becoming urban community. That yeah. is, and I really feel like you're talking about the teaching yeah. that we're receiving yeah. from population of students like Isaiah yeah, yeah. And, or, or adults. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I feel like we are missing a huge opportunity if we're not listening yeah. to be trained by them yeah. for the unchurched children coming in. Yeah, because Because yeah. there's no difference in accommodating yeah. For, um, for, their, for them as a population, yeah. I mean, we, we have to make many more accommodations for the unchurched yeah. children yeah. than we do for the yeah. children with disabilities. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I, I agree with that 100%. And as, as again, we kind of look forward and we think about how to transition and, and how to, to transform, you know, there's something about the way that we do church. Also heard Brigamon say this: that um, when we, if we really preach the mission, the gospel of Jesus, and we really expect the people to live up to it, what would happen to our churches? How many people do we have at our churches that are really faithful to the mission? Twenty percent, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that was that was his number, but I, I, I thought back on it. I thought that that may be kind of accurate, and there may be a level where for us to do what we're called to do to live into this mission, we may have to get small for a while. We may have to bring people along because, you know, if we slow down, you guys have seen these clips before. There's something about, any of you ever seen the clip of, of Dabo Sweeney, um, and, and it talks about him and his relationship to Gene Stallings, uh, who was a coach at Alabama, and, and Dabo Sweeney played for him there. And Gene Stallings famously had a son with Down syndrome. and talks about that relationship. And now at Clemson, they've got a, one of their equipment guys is, is, is uh, another student that experiences Down syndrome. And it interviews all the players, and you can just see the love that they have for him and the love that he has for them. And you know what it does to everybody that watches it, if they've got a soul? <laughs> it makes them cry. <laughs> It moves them emotionally because there is something about being confronted with that level of humanity that moves us in that direction. And that's the gift that people that experience this difference have to offer to our churches. If you've been at a church that has had that and has been able to bring someone that's experienced difference and put them and put their gifts on display, it's amazing what it does to the church. Eric used to sing a song called We Will Rise. Eric is a good singer. I I hate to keep picking on people that I know here, but Eric is a really good singer, song leader, Um, and there was a Down syndrome uh, young man at the church that we were attending. His name was Kurt, and he would sing a duet with Eric on that song, We Will Rise. Not We Will Rise, what was it? We Will Ride. We Will Ride. We Will Ride. I was close. I was one letter off. We Will Ride. And you know what? He didn't get all the words right. Mm -hmm. He didn't hit the tune perfectly, but you know what the church did? They worshipped. And they worshiped. They were moved. And there's something about being confronted with that level of humanity that draws us into the gospel. It draws us into who God is calling us to be. So anyway, I think it's very important because it teaches us not just about how to interact with people that experience difference, but it teaches us to slow down and be better at interacting with people that experience all kinds of differences. So thank you for that. Thank you for that point. Maybe one more, anybody else? What is your, do you have a special need ministry at your congregation? Um, Yeah. What does that look like? Well, that's the direction that that we're we're moving right now. I'm also doing, uh, finishing my DMIN at Lipscomb. And part of what I'm doing is doing group spiritual direction with families that, uh, special needs families. Um, So, but right now we're on the front end of, again, just educating our people and moving our people in that direction. And our church, I think, naturally, there's a level where they naturally do it because me, as one of the staff members having a disabled child, they naturally kind of know how to deal a little bit better with families that experience it because they've seen my family walk through it. And like I said, everybody made a lot of mistakes on that. But step one is they loved us well and we loved them because even in that difficulty, we had a track record with each other. And so they knew me and we knew them. So they gave me a lot of space to really spend probably two years of really ineffective ministry Mm -hmm. figuring my life out that a lot of churches probably wouldn't have done. Thank you. All right. Well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. God, again, we thank you. And I just pray, God, that you'll give us eyes, you'll give us spiritual vision um, to see people as you see them. I pray that you'll move us in the direction of being a better, more inclusive community that more represents the way your kingdom and your reign on earth as you are moving us in to new creation and recreation. In Jesus' name I pray.